millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, August 22nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a heat wave and low rainfall has prompted the governor to issue a partial burn ban in Mississippi. Then thousands of children in Mississippi are being removed from the Medicaid rolls. And we speak with the first black Republican elected to the state legislature since Reconstruction. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves has issued a partial burn ban for the state of Mississippi. High temperatures and little rainfall have lingered on for weeks this month. Local burn bans have been issued by the Mississippi Forestry Commission and other municipalities in the meantime. But this new order places around half of the state under a burn notice. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with state forester Russell Bozeman about why a single spark can be so dangerous. The biggest reason is the absence of any moisture. We have had no precipitation um, since that uh, last time we spoke. And the conditions are continuing to deteriorate. Uh, There are no forecasted rain events coming either. Um, we're this week we're looking at across the board triple digits no rain in sight conditions will continue to uh, become very dangerous when it comes to wildfire you're making me miserable um like it, I, it's so hot outside that is so obvious to anyone who steps out what else is happening to the forestry around the area that other than the temperature that is making conditions particularly vulnerable to fires right now it's just that time of year Uh, Typically, in the fall, we always have two main fire seasons in Mississippi. We have the big one that happens in the spring, usually around the month of March, and then we have always have a fall fire season. Typically, what you see in the fall is rains will stop coming in August sometime, and then about September, halfway through September, maybe into October, we're dry. That vegetation that grew all summer starts drying up especially small fuels like grasses and weeds they'll start drying up the fires will get into that we'll get wind events typically in the fall as the fronts start coming through wind dry fuels and fire do not go well together Um, they that is what creates wildfires 
And so typically in the fall, what we've seen this year is the rain shut off earlier in the southern half of the state particularly. We've been very fortunate that the northern half of the state a few weeks back was still continuing to get rain. However, it's been a while since the northern, northern half of the state has seen any real significant rain, and we are starting to see the drought creep north. So we keep up with the drought indexes. We use something called the Keech-Byram Drought Index. Uh, and the, we have 13 weather stations in Mississippi that the Forestry Commission has that feed into the National Weather Service. So our stations along with their stations, we have a pretty good idea where the droughts are occurring. So far, <coughs> excuse me, so far, most of the drought has been in South Mississippi. The extreme drought has been in South Mississippi, but we are starting to see that move north. And the longer the northern part of the state goes without rain, the closer they are to getting in the same situation that we're seeing in South Mississippi right now. So like you said, these dry seasons are expected. You say that this happens commonly around this time of year. This level of burn bans, I believe I read somewhere half of the counties in the state being under a burn ban right now. Is that to be expected? Is that common? So county-level burn bans are not uncommon. <clears throat> when it gets dry and we're starting to see an increase in wildfire activity, our volunteer partners are starting to respond to more grass fires and brush fires. Uh, we'll see these county-level burn bans come on. Typically, a county-level burn ban is we start communicating with the county-level EOCs, emergency operation centers, uh, there in those counties. Um, if it gets to a point where we are responding to a lot of fire on the ground, then oftentimes what will happen is a county board of supervisors will, will vote to impose a burn ban, and then that comes to this office, and the Forestry Commission approves the burn ban, uh, assuming everything is you know, looking like it like it should. We are seeing the fire increase. It is a drought, et cetera, et cetera. So it's two parties that have to authorize a county-level burn ban. So prior to the burn ban that we received from the governor's office at the end of last week, which we were greatly appreciative of, we had seen about 22 or so counties had already imposed county-level burn bans. But with uh, some forecasted wind and the extreme drought conditions. And, and we're, what we're seeing on the ground is very erratic and very explosive wildfire behavior. So when we are getting these ignition sources on the that, that happen in the, oftentimes here lately they're coming off the side of roads. Somebody threw out a cigarette or there's chains dragging on a road throwing sparks. The fires that are getting established are moving at a high rate of speed and they're very volatile in other words they're flaming up at 100 feet you know burning out entire crowns because it's so dry so when we see that real erratic fire behavior uh, it obviously is creating a tremendous amount of threat to both life and property um, along with the forecast which is like you said, it's quite a bummer. It's going to be very, very hot and very, very dry for the next seven to ten days. We went ahead and, and, uh, and requested uh, the governor's consideration for a state-level burn ban. And, and the 40 counties that it, that it is currently in are the ones that are experiencing the, mo the most drought and where we are seeing the most wildfire right now. So you said that burn bans have to be implemented by these two different entities. What does the governor's burn ban do that those do not? No, very good question. So the county-level burn bans that I referenced, um, they will 
uh, limit or prohibit open outdoor burning, there are some exemptions that can take place at the county level. For example, uh, contractors, certified prescribed burn managers, agricultural burns, the Mississippi Forestry Commission ourselves, can, there are some exemptions that typically can be applied to a county burn ban. For example, if we're seeing an increase in accidental fire, but the conditions aren't so bad that people that are trained in using controlled burns um, that we're not seeing those get out, then you can a county can ask for an exemption for that category of, of burner. When it gets bad enough, though, that we're starting to work with the the governor's office, uh, which in turn also has us working with our other state partners like MEMA, uh, possibly the National Guard if it gets bad enough. So, you know, that declaration of emergency through that proclamation that issued that burn ban from the governor's office gives us a little more... Uh, flexibility or tools, I should say, tools in the toolbox. It also does not include any exemptions because it's bad enough to, to involve a governor's office. So there are no exemptions, and it gives us additional tools should we need them if fire continues to, to grow at the rate we're seeing it right now. That was State Forester Russell Bozeman. Coming up, thousands of Mississippians are being removed from Medicaid, including children. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. There are many ways to support the programs you love on MPB. Becoming a member, starting a monthly gift, donate a vehicle you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. To learn more about the advantages of donating real estate, just click Donate Now from mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Division of Medicaid is moving forward with plans to review the status of thousands of participants that had extended coverage because of the pandemic. A large number of those who lost coverage are children. During the public health emergency issued by former President Trump and extended by President Biden, Medicaid could not take people off the rolls. But that emergency order ended earlier this summer, allowing agencies to reassess who was eligible for continued benefits. Our Will Stribling speaks with Dr. John Godet, a pediatrician and professor of clinical services or rather clinical sciences, at William Carey University. He says that emergency order was a vital part of getting through the coronavirus pandemic. But I think many children who are losing their coverage are actually still eligible. And the number for procedural terminations or disenrollments because of, let's say, failing to respond to a letter is really higher than what we would like to see and there are many people who might be losing their coverage who are still eligible uh, or who may be caught in a situation where they're going to an appointment to see their physician uh, uh, you know, uh, like they've been doing for years now, and then they'll get there and find that they actually are not coverage and covered by their Medicaid and um, uh, they're not able to continue uh, to get their care. 
these procedural determinations run the risk of having people lose their coverage because of something simple like let's say they moved and the forwarding address is not good or something happened to the mail or it got thrown out or or something of that nature which is almost like a um an insignificant type of occurrence it happens a lot of time uh, to people in their everyday lives but losing their health coverage is a huge consequence for that but the numbers of children that are being procedurally disenrolled is too high and we hope that the division and I, and I know they're doing uh, through the website a, a lot through like for instance the stay covered program text messaging emailing and so forth but there's so many people that are being disenrolled it's a difficult to reach everyone really we need to look at other states whose procedural disenrollments are smaller and lower and see what the what steps that we can take here in Mississippi and we only want people who no longer qualify for Medicaid to be disenrolled. We don't want to disenroll people who are deserving and who still need it. And I think it takes a lot of extra effort in order to keep that, to ensure that that happens. Can you think of, off the top of your head, any any best practices from, from other states you think that, that, that we should imitate? So that is a little bit outside of my realm of expertise. <laughs> um, I I think that... When you look at the numbers, and again, this is my opinion here, it looks like we're disenrolling uh, individuals very fast. You know, that there was uh, an ex parte re-enrollment where, you know, it's sort of done automatically based on other criteria. Uh, I think those are very efficient. But sending the letters through the U.S. mail, and then if they're not responded in a time period, uh, to me, I think that is a, a very inefficient way of doing it, and there's a lot of people who might be losing their their benefits uh, based on snail mail kind of thing, which I'm, I'm concerned that the numbers are going to be too high using that methodology. But and and the other thing I'm concerned about is sort of this administrative churn. You know, the the, the division has said, well, if you are disenrolled, you could re-enroll, you know, reapply uh, if dropped from your coverage, you know, within 120 days, which is great. But then you have this churn sort of factor where people are going off and on and off and on like a revolving door. And that comes with a cost. You, you've got human resources that are required to, to track the churn. And then you have people who are walking around thinking that they have health coverage and don't, and you probably have people walking around thinking that they don't qualify for health coverage and do. The program is intended to provide health coverage. Not just, it's not just income requirement. You have to qualify. For instance, you need to be uh, blind or disabled or a child or pregnant or a caregiver. And so these are individuals who we want to make sure that they have access to their coverage, whether that's for their wellness or for management of a chronic disease, immunizations. This is a very important population that we want to make sure that they maintain that access. You talked about how it's hard to do to reach every person. And we saw during the pandemic that the Division of Medicaid does have some messaging issues. What does that tell you about their ability to communicate effectively in complex situations like this and like this and do instances like that concern you in terms of how they're going to handle this and this entire unwinding process that's going to go well into next year it 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 does inform 
my concern, and I'm, I'm hesitant to be overly critical to the division of Medicaid. It's a difficult position that they're in, but when you're talking about thousands of people, if you say one thing and then later on reverse that, not everybody is going to get the memo that it's reversed. So I think it has to be done very carefully and 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 methodically you really want to do it not like a all right let's drop thousands of people and then see who re-enrolls i think it ought to be done the other way around and really disenroll people very slowly and methodically to ensure that those who are deserving of continued coverage can maintain that and i know that they want to be also as judicious as possible with their taxpayer dollars and, and making sure that they're covering lives uh, who need to be covered and not covering other lives who don't need to be. So it's a tightrope that they're walking. It is a deep hill to climb, and it's a hard task to undertake, which is why I really want to encourage everyone involved to, to be as judicious and cautious about it, because when you're talking about someone's health care or their medications things that they need in order to survive, or uh, it's not a trifling issue and, and should not be done in a very uh, overly aggressive or, or even haphazard fashion. Dr. John Godet is a pediatrician and professor of clinical services at William Carey University. Coming up, a conversation with the first black Republican elected to the state legislature since Reconstruction. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next Fresh Air, the first female president of Harvard, Drew Gilpin Faust. Her new memoir is about rebelling against the norms of racism and gender inequality she was raised with in the 50s and 60s in Virginia. Her grandmother identified with the Confederacy. Faust became a civil rights and anti-war activist and author of books about the Civil War. Join us. Today at 3 on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippians in DeSoto County have elected the first black Republican since Reconstruction to serve in the state legislature. Some people of color have run as independents, but Representative-elect Rodney Hall is the first to win on the Republican ticket. He secured his seat through the primary election and will run unopposed in November. Hall is also the first lawmaker to serve in the newly formed House District 20 in DeSoto County. Prior to last year's redistricting, it was located in Itawamba Lee and Monroe counties. Representative-elect Hall speaks with our Kobe Vance about what this historic vote means to him and other conservative black leaders in the state. I consider myself a soldier first. You know, I, I grew up uh, wanting to be like my father, like my grandfather. Uh, they both served in the Army. My dad, he retired from the Mississippi Army National Guard with just over 25 years. Uh, I joined at 17. I'm, I'm closely approaching the 20-year mark uh, of service in the Mississippi Army National Guard. And, you know, that's where I really gained a lot of my foundation as far as, uh, you know, values and, and things of that nature that, that are so important to me. 
lived all over uh, the state of Mississippi, uh, lived all over uh, the country, of course, with my dad being active duty first. Uh, but, you know, DeSoto County is where I call home. Uh, it was a place where my parents were able to finally uh, realize the American dream after working so hard uh, their entire life, uh, coming from humble beginnings and uh, trying to provide for myself and my sister. Uh, and so they bought their first house uh, ever in DeSoto County in Carriage Hills, and that is currently where uh, I'm raising my family and where I'm representing moving forward here in, in January. I think here in Mississippi, it's impossible to skip the idea of race and how that plays a role in our politics. Um, you will be the first uh, black man to serve as a Republican in the state legislature. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for you, and uh, what do you think that means for other black Mississippians who might have a conservative-leaning uh, ideology that are considering seeking office or want to vote for someone that's like them? My win is, uh, of course, it's historic in nature, and you know I don't take that lightly. Uh, one thing that I would like to share, I mean, and over you know the course of the campaign, is that you know my win is not really my win alone, but it's really a coalition of efforts. And it shows, you know, just how determined and how important the Republican Party here in Mississippi and our, our leaders uh, value the voices, values uh, the input from uh, minorities all across the state. I mean, you look at the under the leadership of Governor Reeves and uh, Chairman Frank, Frank Bordeaux, uh, you know, back last year they launched the Minority Outreach Committee, but that wasn't the first time that it's been done. Uh, you know, I, I want to say Governor Bryan, who also uh, I sat down with and talked uh, with early in the campaign. Uh, Governor Bryan, of course, had always been a champion uh, for making inroads with the minority community, people of color. And it's not, uh, you know, I think the reason why that is is because uh, the Republican Party values minorities. They value uh, minority uh, opinions. Uh, they're their challenges, and then also believe that, uh, like I feel, uh, minority people in Mississippi in particular, uh, their their values, their priorities, their principles are, are shared with that with most of Mississippi. And I believe that there is a huge cohort of minorities, not just in DeSoto County, but all across Mississippi that share the same values as the Republican Party. Given the history of the state, the history of our country, uh, that's not something that's not a small task that can be accomplished overnight. And for anybody to assume that this was a overnight sensation, I think that they don't pay the value or the homage to uh, Republican leaders all across the state that have been working on this effort for quite some time. What are your policy priorities going into the session next year? My big thing is I want to make sure that I meet with all the leaders in DeSoto County. Uh, and make sure that I'm addressing the issues for the countywide. That's my number one priority. Uh, if you look at the kind of the successes that we've had recently, I mean, the Republican Party has been doing a, a fine job of steering us in the right direction. That said, it's not all you know rose-colored glasses. Uh, of course, there are some challenges. I mean, you look at education, uh, graduation rates have increased. Reading and math, uh, we've had great success there. Uh, we had the largest pay raise, I want to say, ever. Uh, but with that said, uh, we still have some challenges with teacher shortages across the state. Uh, even if we're able to hire good quality teachers, it's hard to keep them there because you can't be a teacher and also try to achieve the American dream with buying a house in like Olive Branch or South Haven because 
the market's too expensive. So we need to look for opportunities to shore up that shortage, uh, but then also make sure that our teachers are funded and continue to do the things that they love. Uh, public safety, always, I mean, that's a foundation bedrock to our community. Uh, you're not going to have thriving businesses. You're not going to have thriving families and, and thriving students. Uh, they're in fear uh, when they lay their head at night. And so I want to make sure that our law enforcement officers are equipped with every available tool that they can to keep our community safe. I also wanted to ask about your veteran background. What do you think that can mean for your qualifications going into this role? And how do you think that experience is going to help you in your time in office? One thing that we are taught and one thing that I've learned uh, just from my time being in the service, being raised by a service member, is that, man, nothing that you can do on your own is as great as you can with coalition of a team. I mean, you really learn teamwork. You really learn hard work, dedication, sacrifice. I mean, those type of values are things that we need uh, of our service members. So uh, those are the kind that we need of our public servants. I understand that this election, you know, this seat that I will be sworn into is not about me. It's about the people that I work with and the people that I work for. And so my goal is to always put DeSoto County residents, DeSoto County voters, uh, and Mississippians all across the board priorities and principles above my own, uh, because that's the only way that we're going to have true growth, true progress when it comes to our state and our society. Rodney Hall is the representative-elect for District 20, which is now in DeSoto County, soon to be Representative Hall. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you well, Kobe. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.